Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. We are living in a failed state. That is a title of an essay by George Packer for The Atlantic. It is worth a read. Packer concludes that America, the world's richest power, has been reduced to a beggar nation in utter chaos. Talking about politics, world events, is not my preferred lane. I started Ratchet and Respectable to talk about pop culture and TV and film and naked men and dating and relationship shenanigans and worldly adventures, spa treatments. I'm thankful that so far, no one has complained about the shift in, in the show. I don't intend it to be permanent. I would like to just talk about frivolous shit that really doesn't matter. But in the middle of a global pandemic, I think that's a bit irresponsible. And it's the only real news. Celebrity shenanigans and the usual bullshit just ain't all that interesting anymore. For everyone except the lieutenant governor of Texas, who says, quote, there are more important things than living, end quote. Are there? Because the things that you think are more important than living, you can't do them if you did. I don't understand. So thank you for listening as we embark on trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Because it's a doozy. That said, I did put together a compelling episode for you today. I hope that you enjoy it. I'll give you a heads up. After we talk about the coronavirus updates, we'll be talking about Teddy Riley and Babyface, the two times they broke the internet. And last, but certainly not least, we'll be talking about former NBA player Steven Jackson, who went live recently to explain why he left his former fiance at the altar. He has a very interesting story. If you listen to Ratchet and Respectable on a regular basis, you might remember that I interviewed that fiance about a month ago. Mr. Jackson had made a live video then, which he accused his children's mothers of of being bitter. He said that of the five mothers, he wished that he had never met three of them. So she and I spoke for the podcast, and she did share details about that wedding that did not happen and why it did not happen. She has a very different version of events from Mr. Jackson, and she also has receipts. One of those receipts that she posted directly contradicts this version of events that he's recently told about their prenuptial agreement and why they didn't get married. In the meantime, I'd like to talk about what I've been calling America series finale. This is looking like the end of the country. For whatever reasons, we just are not progressing with this virus. Who actually has it? Who has antibodies for it? What we're actually dealing with? Most of the East Coast and the West Coast have been shut down for... Is this week six, week seven? I've lost track of time. After all this time, we're still having problems with PPE and tests. This is a weird one. 
I'm in Maryland with my parents to ride this thing out. Maryland's governor is Larry Hogan. You may have heard about him in the news recently. Donald Trump said that it was up to the states to figure out their testing. He's not getting involved, which fucking president. How are you not getting involved? But okay. So he told the states to figure it out. Larry Hogan did figure it out. He, with the help of his wife, the first lady of Maryland, Yummy Hogan, she is Korean from Korea and as such fluent in Korean. Governor Hogan found some tests in South Korea. He asked Yummy if she could get on the phone and talk her talk, do some negotiating. And between the two of them, teamwork making the dream work, they were able to secure 500,000 tests for the people of Maryland. Talk about marrying well. Governor Hogan married well. But here's the twist of this story. Hogan had to go around the federal government in order to get the test. He wouldn't tell anyone about the test until the tests were safely at BWI. And he won't tell people how he got them in. And the reason he won't is because there have been stories about the federal government seizing tests and PPE from the states and other healthcare professionals that have tried to secure these items from outside of the country. The federal government denies this, but the stories about what's going on have been popping up in very reputable places. New York Magazine ran a great story about this. It started off with a letter published by the New England Journal of Medicine. That journal featured a letter in its COVID-19 note series that was written by an executive running a small health system. He says, our supply chain group has worked around the clock to secure gowns, gloves, face masks, goggles, face shields, and N95 respirators. A lead came from an acquaintance of a friend of a team member. Three members of the supply chain team and a fit tester were flown to a small airport. Two semi-trailer trucks, cleverly marked as food service vehicles, met us at the warehouse. When fully loaded, the trucks would take two distinct routes back to Massachusetts to minimize the chances that their contents would be detained or redirected. Before we could send the funds by wire transfer, two Federal Bureau of Investigation agents arrived, showed their badges, and started questioning me. After receiving my assurances and hearing about our health system's urgent needs, the agents let the boxes of equipment be released and loaded into the trucks. But I was soon shocked to learn that the Department of Homeland Security was still considering redirecting our PPE. Only some quick calls leading to intervention by our congressional representative prevented its seizures. New York Magazine points out that what is most horrifying about this account is that his experience was not all that surprising to him. He expected interference from federal officials and did everything he could, including staging the shipment in food service trucks to avoid detection. The Chicago Sun-Times has a similar story. They reported that the governor of Illinois was arranging secret chartered flights of supplies as a way of outmaneuvering federal interference. A spokesperson for the governor told the paper, quote, the supply chain has been likened to the wild, wild west. Once you have purchased supplies, 
ensuring they get to the state is another Herculean feat. These stories are everywhere. There's another one in USA Today. He says his supplies were seized by FEMA. USA Today reached out to FEMA and they called the accusations, quote and unquote, false. USA Today went back to that Delaware supplier and said, bruh, they're denying what you're saying. How do we know what you're saying is true? The supplier said, I have receipts. Literally. He shared a written order that FEMA sent to his company. The document directed him to sell to the federal government, quote, all filtering facepiece respirators, including the N95 respirators contained within shipping number XYZ that arrived at JFK Airport on April 6th. There was a following shipment on April 19th of 300,000 masks, which were also seized. USA Today followed up with FEMA to ask where this document came from. They did not receive a response. What are they doing with the PPE? Why are they seizing it? Where is it going? Across the nation, healthcare workers are crying about PPE. It's necessary. I don't understand why the people that you have working on your front lines don't have the very fundamental equipment that they need to protect themselves. More than 9,000 healthcare workers have been infected with COVID-19. How is that acceptable? You're not going to protect your healthcare workers with your overwhelmed hospitals. And then you turn around and you have these governors who are operating at Trump's behest. He wants the nation reopened for business. The economy is tanking. He's pissed. Many of these Republican governors, notably not Maryland's Larry Hogan, who is a Republican, but is doing the Lord's work for this state right now. But these Republican governors, especially the ones in the South, are trying to open up their states again. I am baffled. How do you decide to open up your state when you don't have proper testing, you don't have proper PPE for your health care workers, and your health care workers are dying? Who is going to take care of the sick people? In so many ways, so many leaders in this country are demonstrating that they do not care about healthcare workers, they do not care about other essential workers, and they do not give one flying fuck about the citizens of the United States. Prime example, you have a crazy mofo like the lieutenant governor of Texas. He's not the only crazy one. There's a mayor in Las Vegas, a woman. She did this interview with Anderson Cooper earlier today. The interview was so bad that Anderson Cooper took off his glasses and rubbed his eyes. Like he was so frustrated and so befuddled at what was coming out of this woman's mouth that he just, he couldn't take it. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to play it for you because if I read it to you, you'd be like, Demetri, you're making up shit. This is hyperbole and exaggeration. And this is beneath you as a journalist. Las Vegas mayor, Carolyn Goodman. You're, I mean, you're talking about encouraging hundreds of thousands of people to come to Las Vegas. Bad. I get the, the financial yeah. losses people are suffering, which is awful. But you're encouraging, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people coming there in casinos, smoking, drinking, touching slot machines, breathing circulated air, and then returning home to states around America and countries around the world. Doesn't that sound like a virus Petri dish? 
I mean, how is that? No, what it sounds like you're being an alarmist. I'm not. I've lived a long life. I grew up in the heart of Manhattan. I know what it's like to be with subways and on buses and crammed into elevators. I think you are by saying what you have just said. So you don't believe there should be any social distancing? You don't believe that this is Of course I believe there should be. Of course. I'm a How do you do that in a casino? That's up to them to figure out. I'm, I don't own a casino. I don't know anything wait about a minute, wait, wait a minute, a minute, wait a minute. I'm sorry. You're the mayor of Las Vegas. And yes. you're calling, you want casinos to be open, even though you have no authority, thankfully, yes. over casinos. But yes. you, you say open them up, but you have no responsibility about how that would be done no, safely? No, no, you're blurring. No, 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 you're blurring. You said it's I'm not, not your job. There. It, I am not a private owner of a hotel. I wish I were. And I would have the cleanest hotel with six feet figured out for every human being comes so in there. If you can't figure out how to do this safely, why, as mayor of a city that you were responsible for the people's safety, are you calling for something that you have no plan for how it would be done safely? I am not a private owner. That's the competition in this country, the free, the free enterprise, and to be able to make sure that what you offer the public meets the needs of the public right now we're in a crisis health-wise and so for a restaurant to be open or a small uh, boutique to be open they better figure it out that's their job that's so not the mayor's you. job yeah i'm convinced she had vodka she had to have been sipping on something to say some shit like that ma'am you are the mayor of the city if you have no plan to keep people safe why the fuck would you advocate opening back up? Las Vegas? I know I say this every episode and I say it so passionately that people laugh about it. They're like, it tickles me so much every time you say it because I can hear your frustration. It is a global pandemic. Why the fuck do you need to gamble in the middle of a global pandemic? The governor of Georgia announced on Monday that he was going to open the state for some business. Despite the federal government guidelines for a state to reopen, which was, hey, states, if you've got 14 days of declining cases, then you can reopen. Two weeks declining cases, you can reopen, which is reasonable. Georgia's coronavirus cases are on the uptick. The governor of Georgia was like, fuck that. Let's open early. And of all the things that he chose to open, he was like, yeah, let's open hair salons, nail salons, barber shops, bowling alleys, gyms, and tattoo parlors. Look, I know how to do the hair on my head. I've always had a mouth on me. My parents tried in vain. To correct that. Thankfully they didn't. Because that's kind of how I pay my bills now. But I spent a lot of time on punishment as a child. Couldn't leave the house. So I just sit around and do my hair. I haven't painted my own nails in. Easily 10 years. The first time I did it. It took me 2 hours. I do them every Thursday. Now it takes me 30 minutes. My brows are really thin. I have them microbladed. So that's fine. Can we speak frankly? My waxing. I cannot do that. It's looking real 1970. I get the impulse to want to go get your hair done. I get the impulse to want to go get your nails done. I've seen the men folk 
everybody on Instagram suddenly has a hat on. Unless you're bald or you're a barber. Everybody else, hats. Lots of hats and do-rags. I get it. I know you want your hair cut, bruh. I get it. I used to have a Caesar. It ain't worth dying for. Look a hot-ass mess for another two weeks, another month, until they have a better understanding of what this thing is, how we can go outside without getting dead. Just wait. I know we're itchy to get out, to do anything. I know. The bowling alley, that makes no goddamn sense. That's the same thing as gambling. Why do you need to bowl during a global pandemic? Why do you need to get a tattoo during a global pandemic? The Georgia governor is a good friend of Trump. Was. On Tuesday, Trump was like, oh, he's great. Saying his praises from the podium, the White House press conference. On Wednesday, Trump threw his ass all the way under the bus. They asked Trump again about the Georgia governor, and he was like, ooh, no, too soon. I wouldn't open. The man was doing it to curry favor with you, sir, to fall in line with you, sir. President called for the country to open, talked about how he was excited that certain states were going to open even before May 1st, called people to protest. Actually sounded like he was calling people to riot and be violent. Liberate. Liberate doesn't sound like, oh, I just want you to show up and pick it with your signs. Groups of people gathering during, say it with me, a global pandemic. Liberate sounds like set shit off. Liberate doesn't sound like social distancing six feet apart with masks on. Peaceful. Liberate sounds like Boston Tea Party type shit. Because really, wasn't that a riot? White people riot and they call it a party. Black people have a party and they call it a riot. Disturbing the peace. I don't even understand Trump's take on this one. I'm glad he said it because it was the right thing to say. But also he's saying it after he encouraged it. Like you encourage some dumb shit to happen. And then some dumb shit happened because of your encouragement as the president of the United States. And then when the shit you said you wanted to happen happens, then you throw the man under the bus for doing it. Not that I actually care how this reads with his base, because I, for obvious reasons, don't want him reelected. But I don't even understand how this works out. Like, what are you doing? Other than causing chaos for chaos fucking sake. There's a meme that sums up about how I feel about these states opening with no proper testing, with obviously no vaccine, with obviously no reliable treatment. Andrea, Andrea, Lachey, quote, for the record, I'm not dying so that this country's economy can improve. My ancestors already did that. I completely get why people want the economy to open. Somewhere on this podcast, there's an ad running for better help. This is not one of them. But I say as an introduction in the ad, we are in difficult times. This scenario that we're living in is overwhelming for many people. Folks are realizing that the goals they had for this year will not be met. That was not just ad copy. That was not something that was written on the page. They said, Demetria, talk about what you're going through because that's what will make it relatable. I will not meet my goals for the year. 
I had a ratchet and respectable tour that I'd been working on planning for months. The first one was supposed to happen in L.A. at the end of March. We didn't get a chance to even announce it. That was the kickoff for the tour. Now, live events are shut down until further notice. So that goal is not going to be met. That money from the sponsors is not going to happen. I think some of you know that Don't Waste Your Pretty is being turned into a TV film. It was supposed to go into production in April. Sometime in February, the casting director was sending out calls for naked men for a new film called Don't Waste Your Pretty. Every means of contacting me people had were hitting me up like, oh my God, someone stole the name of your book. No one stole the name of the book. It's my TV film. It was supposed to air this fall. Will it? I'm thankful that even without those two projects that I really, really wanted to happen this year, that I can still pay my bills. I recognize that I am very fortunate. Everyone is not in that position. And I have the greatest sympathy for folks who are financially struggling right now. I do not blame people who want the economy to open up because they want to go to work so they can pay their bills, so they can provide for themselves, their children, so they can eat. We're not talking about folks who want to go buy flat screens and Jordans. We're talking about people who want money to ensure survival and basic needs. I hate that so many people have been forced into a position where they feel they have to choose between risking their life or working. That is a hard choice to make. And it's negligent that our federal government has not provided for its citizens in this time. $1,200 wouldn't cover my one bedroom in Brooklyn 20 years ago. That's all some people have received. Some people haven't even seen that. The check was supposed to be coming. Folks check their accounts every day. Ain't nothing there. Something like 40% of Americans didn't pay their rent last month. Some people might have been trifling. The vast majority of people ain't got it. They hadn't worked in two weeks. A lot of folks were struggling before this happened. They're struggling worse now. It's unfortunate. It's so unfortunate. And no one has easy answers. And I say that to say, if you are in economic ruin, if you are on the cusp of economic ruin, that's something you can come back from. I'm not saying that will be easy. I'm just saying that if you just keep living, wonderful things can happen. I've lived that. I also know if you dead, ain't no coming back from that. Fucked up finances, hard to fix, fixable. Once you dead, you dead. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, 
indoor or outdoor. You can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. In lighter news, Babyface and Teddy Riley had their much-anticipated, long-awaited face-off for Versus. They had it twice. It was delayed initially. People thought it was because Teddy Riley was trying to charge, but it turned out that Babyface and his family all had coronavirus. So he delayed it. So this past Saturday, we all gathered around our iPads and our iPhones on Instagram, ready to see this battle. I have not watched the other ones. I wasn't really sure what was going to happen when I logged on to Teddy Riley. He was in his studio. There was a hype man. There was a microphone. Teddy Riley had his keyboard out. There were lots of people in the room despite, you know, social distancing. Naria one had on a mask. And I was like, oh, is this what Versus is? I've been tuning in to D-Nice at Club Quarantine. I thought it was going to be two people with good sound, their microphones, and just playing their music, doing shout outs, you know, maybe some tidbits about the songs. But I just thought, you know, a lot of good quality sound, a lot of music. But I was like, oh, okay, Teddy Riley has a whole concert. He's getting ready to perform. This is exciting. So I guess Babyface is also going to perform. I love Babyface. I love Teddy Riley too. Big fan of both, but I'm a bigger fan of Babyface. Nothing personal to Teddy Riley, just a preference. Then Babyface, it took him a while to get on. As it would turn out, Teddy Riley just wasn't paying attention to his phone. So Babyface finally comes on. And then I'm confused because Teddy Riley has this whole elaborate setup on a split screen. So he's at the top and Babyface is at the bottom. And all of the commentary is going over Babyface's face. And then there's hearts going up the side. But you can make out that Babyface is in his smoking jacket alone in the room chilling and I was like oh so it's it's not a concert oh okay I'm confused because Teddy Riley looks like he's doing MSG and Babyface just looks like he's chilling at home this feels like two different events are happening I'm not sure so it takes a while to figure out some technology which you know these are black men in their 50s and 60s Babyface is 62, doesn't look a day of it, but Babyface was okay. Teddy Riley, there was a million people in the room and he just, no one knew how to to work the audio. So Babyface sitting alone in his studio and whatever he was playing his music on, Teddy Riley, despite all of these people and all of this production, there was an echo. Everyone's in the comments. Instead of talking about the music, it's like, hey, Teddy, your sound, there's an echo. Hey, hey, the sound is off. So it takes about three songs for them to actually fix the sound. 
Teddy tried to blame it on Babyface, and he was like, oh, I think it's you. And everyone was like, no, that's not Babyface. Babyface was like, I haven't done anything. I'm here alone, social distancing. So Teddy Riley fixes something. It's better. It's still not good. They played three songs each already. Teddy Riley was like, oh, let's start over. We don't need to start over. The sound wasn't good, but we knew what the songs were. We'd already decided who won which song. So they started over again. And then the sound went out. Babyface, who was a shady palm tree of a human. He had so many casual one-liners. Teddy Riley played a song from High Five. And Babyface was like, oh, okay. Like, you, how old were they when, uh, when, when, when they did that? And Teddy Riley was like, oh, you know, I think one was 16, but the oldest one was 18. And Babyface was like, yeah, okay. Bobby Brown was about that age when I did this. And he dropped every little step. I had no idea Babyface did most of Don't Be Cruel. There was something else Babyface said. Oh, Teddy Riley did the show with Dougie Fresh, which I did know because I saw Teddy Riley in concert at Essence a couple years ago and Dougie Fresh came out. And I was like, wait, what does Teddy Riley have to do with Dougie Fresh? And then I looked it up and was like, holy shit. But he played the show and Babyface was like, oh, how old were you when you did this? Were you 12? It's like, sir, you're a shady palm tree. But Teddy's music was messed up. Babyface was like advanced level Omarion. Remember Omarion? They were asking about his bandmate now being with the mother of his two children. And Omarion was like so unbothered. He was like, I don't feel no kind of ways about it. Babyface is advanced level Omarion. Teddy Riley was just trying to figure out so much. He was standing there with his hands on his hips, looking around, trying to get one of the million people in the room to figure out the audio. No one knew what to do. And Babyface was just so patient. Teddy, 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 Teddy. Tyrese was one of the 500,000 people that showed up to watch Teddy and Babyface. And Tyrese was like, just throw in the tile. Somebody photoshopped what he wrote. And they misspelled everything. And Tyrese reposted it and was like, I did not write this. This is not me. I know how to spell tile. He didn't know that the saying is throw in the towel. I have a Maryland accent. Technically, when I say throw in the towel, it could be heard as tile. I get that. Tyrese has made it into his 40s believing that people are getting upset and throwing the tile. I'm like, wouldn't that hurt? Did you never watch Rocky or, or Creed or, or any kind of boxing match? That's where the phrase comes from. When you're trying to end a boxing match, the ref is not hearing you. You literally throw in the towel. Tyrese was not aware. He was made aware. The internet made him aware in the most hilarious of ways. Oh my God. The memes, the best. Everyone sitting at home bored as shit with nothing to do. I stayed up until the middle of the night cackling about Tyrese and Teddy Riley. It was wonderful. It was a great night. The thing started at nine. Finally, somebody from Teddy Riley's camp came on and was like, yeah, come back in 30 minutes. Um, We're going to be back. We're going to fix the sound. It was something like 300, 400,000 people on that live waiting for Teddy Riley to figure out his sound. 
And I was like, sir, you did the most. You set up a whole studio. He was taping the whole thing for his website. Very elaborate setup. And I was like, y'all did all of this. It took y'all all day to set this up. And no one thought, we should probably check the sound before we go live. Only because it was Teddy and Babyface. I went back at 1030. Babyface was there promptly and was like, hey, y'all, this is not going to happen tonight. This is not going to happen. We're going to get the sound right. We're going to come back to you another time. Thanks for coming out. God bless and good night and logged off. I was like, what? Because I was excited about it when they first announced it. And then we had to wait for Babyface to get better, which no problem. These are legends. I will wait on them to figure out their life to give us a free concert. I am grateful for the time and the music that they shared with us. But I was excited. Like that was my evening plan. And then nothing happened. Babyface was like, "Mm -mm, 1030, that's a wrap for me. It's time to put on my soft clothes, put on my moisturizer, keep my baby face. Call it a night, get some rest. Babyface was done. Teddy Riley got dragged all over the internet, rightfully so. That's like you go to the club, one of your friends does the most and gets y'all all kicked out. You wanted to be at the club. It was like Bella Noche's. If you cannot go to Bella Noche's, where can you go? But I was upset. Like, that was my evening plan. And then I had no plan. I was like, um. So, part two happened on Monday. Teddy Riley, he can't not be extra. Some people are just not capable. He had a towel around his shoulders Which now, in retrospect, I was like, was he, like, spoofing Tyrese with the towel? He was sitting down this time. Like, he was being normal. At some point, he took the towel off, and he had a choker. And I was just like, you know what? I don't understand, but, you know, do you. Do you. Play your music, sir. Play your music. Overall, part two went well. I couldn't get in initially because, I want to say, like, 350,000 people logged on within, like, the first 10 minutes. It overwhelmed Instagrams. I had to log on through an iPad. And when I was on, it got up to, I don't know, 450,000, 460,000 people, which is crazy. I read somewhere that 3 million people in total watched the live. Some other people, I know Questlove was streaming it. Some other people were too. So a lot of other people were watching through other people's streams because they couldn't get on to the main one. Overall, I thought Babyface won. I may be biased on that. Like, I like Teddy Riley's music, X-Wing, but I'm a bigger Babyface fan. I did get stuck on a couple rounds, though. One of them was Peace of My Love by Guy versus Ready or Not by After 7. I had to call that one a draw. Babyface played Whip Appeal. Teddy Riley responded with Let's Chill. Red Light Special by TLC versus the I Get Lonely remix by Janet Jackson. Babyface's shady self. He was like, "Oh, did did you write that? Produce that? Like, what? What? Because he knew Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis did it, and Teddy was like, "Oh, I did the remix." And Babyface was like, "Oh, I don't, I don't do remixes." It was good until it wasn't. Babyface broke out his guitar at one point. Teddy Riley was like, "Oh, is that what we're doing? I didn't know we could do instruments. I think it was for When Can I See You, was it? Don't quote me on that." After Babyface broke out that guitar, suddenly Teddy Riley keeps getting up and leaving the room whenever it's time for Babyface to play his music. 
And I was like, where is he going? Even my mom, like she was like, does, does he have to go to the bathroom? He's been like three times. Is he okay? I couldn't figure out what was going on. Then Teddy Riley comes back. He sits for a while and he was like, yeah, my phone is at 8%. Sir, I know you're not having technical issues again. Not after the way you got clowned last time. You ain't had no charger for your phone. You showed up for a whole musical battle that was supposed to last two hours in which you were playing music off your phone and you ain't had no charger. It wasn't on the charger this whole time. He was like, oh, I got 8%. It'll be okay. Shortly after that, it seems as though Teddy Riley's phone has died. So Babyface is over on his page trying to figure out what to do. He breaks out his guitar. He's like, I'm going to wait for Teddy to call back in. He starts strumming along. Babyface said, this is an R&B battle, so I'm going to play you some of my white music. I settled in. I like some white people acoustic guitar music. I figured he was going for Eric Clapton, and that's exactly where he went. I was excited. And then Babyface was like, no, I don't feel right. I shouldn't be playing. Let me go try to find Teddy. Meanwhile, Teddy has reappeared on Instagram. He's got his keyboard now. He's just playing away, playing his heart out. Babyface keeps trying to get in. People in the comments were like, hey, Teddy, Babyface is here. Teddy was just playing along. He wasn't looking for no parts of Babyface. I was like, are you serious? Then Swizz Beats called. We can hear Swizz in the background trying to tell Teddy Riley how to get Babyface back on the feed. Babyface can't get in because it's too many damn people. So that was the end of that. Babyface went back over to his page and said he was going to finish out the set. He had a couple more songs he wanted to play. So I left. Nothing against Teddy Riley. I recognize and respect him as a musical genius. I love Guy. Unless Aaron Hall has had a come to Jesus moment, he is still a trash human. Look up his interviews on YouTube if ever you have a chance. They're terrible. But maybe he's changed his ways. I hope so. We could sing his ass off. My God, that's a singing ass man. I love his voice. But I went back over to Babyface and he played a little Whitney Houston, Count on Me. I don't know what Teddy played. I heard he was just jamming away. And at some point, Dr. Dre came on. People keep asking for Dr. Dre and Puffy East Coast, West Coast versus. The child was like, I'd love to see it. I'd be shocked if that happened. You got to know who you ask things of. Dr. Dre took a good 13, 14 years to give us the chronic which was named Compton by the time it came out. Like, Dr. Dre, he'll do what he do on his own time. We might get verses somewhere in 2030. I look forward to it. But it was good. I had a good time. I'm not really into the online events. and nothing wrong with it. Love D-Nice. Like, everyone's like, oh, are you going to club quarantine? I'm like, hmm, am I going to... Log on to Instagram Live and watch someone spin music? Sure, that's fine. But it doesn't recreate the club experience for me. I just don't have the suspension of disbelief in that way. People hit me up, be like, D, do you want to do Zoom? No. People FaceTime me. D, answer. No. I'll call you back. I'll call you back. But I'm not answering your FaceTime. Stop it. Calling people on FaceTime, unscheduled, it's like popping up at somebody's house. You can't just pop up at my house. You can't just pop up on my phone. People ask, Demetria, do you want to come on our live and talk about 
No. I don't have that desire to be social in front of an audience. I get my fix writing. I don't have a desire to be seen, but I have a desire to be heard. Last, but certainly not least, I want to talk about a topic that came up about a month ago that has come up again. There is a retired basketball player by the name of Steven Jackson. He did a video on his Instagram page that went viral. It started off well. He has children with five different women. And he was encouraging young men on how not to make some of the choices that he did that weren't in his best interest. And in this case, the choice was having children by a lot of women. He says that of the five women he has children with, he wishes he never met three of them. He says he's paid millions in child support. He said something, I may not quote it exactly, but it was this sentiment that bitter black women are a black man's downfall. And then bitter black women are worse for black men than the police. I'm like, bruh, if you had just stopped at the first part, I addressed some of that on my Instagram page. I reposted a portion of Steven's video and I noted some of my concerns and questions. One of which was, what is it that you hope to accomplish by getting on the internet and saying that you wish you never met three of the five women that you have children with? Like he didn't name the women, which could leave all of the kids wondering, was he talking about my mom? Does he wish that I didn't exist, which is a fucked up thing to hear from your father. He has said that three of the five women are bitter. I pointed out that the common denominator of him and these women, including the bitter ones, is him. If three of these women are bitter, why are they bitter? I'd love to know because I've never met a woman who's bitter about men. And I have met bitter women. There are those that exist. There's nine times out of 10 an underlying reason for why they were bitter. The woman has been treated wrong. She's been emotionally manipulated. She's been abused. She's been misled. Those are things that tend to lead to bitterness. What did you do to these women that they are bitter? What are they bitter about? I said, I would love to hear what the women that he's speaking about, I would love to hear what their perspective is. Like, what happened? Why are they bitter? So a lot of people responded to that post. And one of them was... One of the women who has children with Steven Jackson. They were engaged at one point. So she reached out and she shared some thoughts on the video, mainly that her children had seen it. That's who brought it. That's who brought the video to her attention. Everyone she knew had been tagging her or calling her or texting her asking what happened now. I asked her if she would like to come on Ratchet and Respectable and share her thoughts about the video. She did agree to the interview. And in the interview, she shared a story that I wasn't aware of about their almost marriage. I knew they had been engaged. 
I knew they'd never been married. So I just assumed like, okay, like the engagement got called off for whatever reason. These things happen. Move along. So she was like, oh, no, it's that's not it. That's not it at all. So she describes a story where on the day of her wedding, she is in her wedding dress getting her makeup done at the hotel and someone comes in with a prenup and she was like, he and I had never discussed a prenup. She said, if he had wanted a prenup, I would have signed a prenup. She's like, I think it's better to negotiate with someone when they are in love with you and you're on good terms than on the back end of a divorce where the love is lost, the feelings are hurt, the ego is bruised. That makes it much more difficult to have fair negotiations. I agree. She was like, he wanted me to sign this an hour before we were to get married. And I was like, no, I'm not signing it. And she said that story got out. And she was like, I always wanted him to defend me and say, this is not what it is. Like, this is not what happened because I look like the villain. I look like a gold digger. And he never came to my defense publicly. And she was like, that always bothered me. And then she moved on to talk about something else. It was literally two minutes of the conversation. After the episode airs, he goes on a rampage. The next day, a couple days later, I didn't watch it. She responded to the second time he'd gone live and was talking about her with a copy of a letter. And it was dated 15 days before their wedding. The letter was addressed to Stephen Jackson. And it was his lawyer practically badgering him to respond so that they could discuss a prenup. So this is what the letter says. It's from RGT Capital Management in Irvine, California. It is dated August 5th, 2005. It is addressed to Stephen Jackson. The letter reads, as a follow-up to our conversation and my many messages regarding our meeting with the attorney who will advise on your premarital planning, I am sending you this letter as I have been unable to reach you. As I have discussed with you numerous times, it is imperative that you speak with Mr. Downing immediately. Given the fact that your wedding is currently scheduled for August 20, 2005, we are running out of time. While I understand that discussing a prenuptial agreement with your fiance may be difficult, it is absolutely imperative that you understand the financial and legal repercussions of your upcoming marriage in the state of Texas. As such, I highly advise that you at least speak with Mr. Downing. So she had this version of events that she had never seen a prenup. They'd never discussed a prenup. He said he didn't want a prenup, in fact. She never saw any document until the actual wedding day. Then she posted this. This letter from the lawyer seems pretty clear that Mr. Jackson had not been consulting his lawyer about a prenup as of two weeks before this wedding. She and Stephen have been going back and forth various times over the last month or so. So their relationship is fraught, to put it mildly. Earlier this week, he goes live for the third time. He tells this story about how he left Melissa more or less at the altar. I didn't see it. I didn't hear about it until Madame Noir 
a website dedicated to black women covers the story. So on the site, they basically post a transcript of Mr. Jackson's version of events. And he starts off, he says, this isn't meant to demean anyone. I love everyone, black women included. He says he's telling this story for women and men, but I really want my young men, it's not the word he used, but let's use that word, to listen to this and take the right advice. He said he met her in New York. They dated for a year or two, and eventually she moved to San Antonio to be with them. He won a championship there, he says, but because the organization didn't feel like his girlfriend was a good influence on the other NBA wives and they didn't like the way she dressed, he decided not to renew his contract. Does that make sense to you? Like the front office of your team is invested not just in the players, but in their wives and how they carry on and in the clothes that your girlfriend wears? I mean, I've never played in the NBA. I have friends that are married to NBA players. That just seems a little far-fetched for me. So they moved from San Antonio to Atlanta and then Indiana. Why does he keep moving teams? Is that normal? I don't follow sports like that. It's a genuine question. I don't know. So he says he proposed. They plan to get married in Houston where he's from. And he says, newsflash. In order to get a prenup drawn up, both the husband and the wife, the bride and the groom have to agree on the prenup before it can even get written up. That's not accurate. That's not true. Because you can draw up a prenup and then present it to someone and then the other person has a lawyer and then their lawyer goes back and forth with your lawyer on what they want. You don't have to both be in the room to do that. That's a choice. He says, I take care of a lot of people. I'm never letting one woman control all of the hard work I've done in my life. Shooting in the gym, blah, 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 blah. So he says they get the prenup. They get it back three to four months before the wedding. He says, I give it to her. She shouldn't be surprised by it because they sat down and agreed on a prenup. Was this with the lawyer or not? He insists, we agreed. Listen to me, y'all. We agreed on the prenup. A month passed, two months passed. I'm like, we need to get that prenup signed. So when we get down there to Houston, we ain't got to worry about it. I tell her that two or three times. Now it's a month before the wedding. And I'm like, this is something we agreed on. I shouldn't have to tell you to sign this prenup. She's like, I'm going to sign it. I'm going to sign it. I'm going to sign it. During that time, we make an arrangement for the wedding. You still got to plan shit. He goes on to talk about there's this pastor that she really, really wants to officiate the wedding. He wanted another pastor, but he's like, it's your wedding. You could do it. Then he goes on to say, Morning of the wedding, he's getting dressed with the groomsmen. In the back of his mind, all he's thinking about is his prenup. He says the preacher comes in with his assistant. The nanny is there. She pulls him to the side and is like, hey, she still hasn't signed the prenup. He says, well, I'm not getting married. The preacher steps up. He says, hey, you love this girl. Don't make a drastic decision. I think you should let God handle it. And he's like, huh? The pastor says he doesn't believe in prenups. So Jackson says, now I know why she was fighting for this pastor, because he don't believe in prenups. He's like, damn, what do you believe in? This dude is funny. He said, I put everything in God's hands and God is telling me to put the pen in her hand and make her sign this goddamn prenup. So God telling you and me two different things. (laughs) 
even knowing about this lawyer letter, I can't help but laugh because of the way he delivers stuff. And this is just the written version. So he continues. I, I, I can't read all of this. He says his sister was in the room with the women. He says she was upset because the women, his ex-fiance and her friends mostly, were in there talking crazy. He says this is when his ex-fiance showed her true colors. He calls the wedding off. Somebody comes in and says, your, your fiance wants to talk to you. His friend says, you were getting ready to marry her. Out of respect, talk to her. He says, okay, I'm going to go speak. She's still in her wedding dress. He gets in the room. She's crying. She says, okay, I'll sign it. I'll sign it. He says, I was born at night, but not last night. Anytime anybody signs anything where they're crying under any type of stress, that shit can get thrown out. So this shit she tried thinking I was going to buckle so it could get thrown out. No, sweetheart. You chose your decision. Kicker. They parted at the hotel. He and his friends decide to go out. Two of her friends go out with them. He says, I'm going to keep it funky. I downed one of them. You feel me? But that's her friends, though. Yeah, I did it. Sure did. If I'm going to trick three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000, I'm going to get some get back. What, wait, so you had sex with one of the bridesmaids? Like, even if you didn't marry the fiancé, she still got a kid with you. You still got to deal with her for the rest of your life. My fiancé sleeping with one of my bridesmaids? Is that not some shit that would make somebody bitter? This is a fascinating story. Madame Noir called it the same thing. It really is a fascinating story. I don't understand how as a news publication, especially a site targeted toward black women, they didn't reach out to the woman he was talking about for comment at all or even go to her Instagram page because they would have seen the letter from the lawyer that contradicts everything that he's saying. He's got a really compelling story. It's got the pastor. It's got the nanny. It's got Stephon Marbury. It has his grandmother. It has his sister. You know, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people involved in his version of events. But then there's also this letter from the lawyer. Form the conclusion that feels right to you. After this drama that I just read to you that Stephen posted on his Instagram page for all of the things that he said, they stayed in a relationship after that. And they had another child. I will also say that this whole scenario Everybody was in their 20s. He's 42. This wedding was supposed to take place 15 years ago. He was 27. This is all really young people shenanigans. That is our podcast for the week, ladies and gentlemen. As always, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. I always appreciate speaking with you. I'm glad we've had this time to convene in these very crazy times. If during the week you would like to have more Ratchet and Respectable in your life, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Demetria L. Lucas. You can follow me on my website at DemetriaLLucas.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, you want to make sure that you get it as soon as it goes up, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. So we will talk soon. Yeah? Okay. Bye.
With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.